Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can I use your mic stand since it's stable? Oh, it is? Okay. Cool. We'll kind of like move the top. Yeah. Okay. You want to use this one? Yeah. Yeah. Let's be safe. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for being flexible with us tonight. Um, we had a little bit of a room problem, but we we bored with it. So thank y'all. Hey, so my name's Sammy. I'm the campus minister here. And if you've been with us, we're doing this series called The Life of Peter. And for me, it's just been really fun to look at. We're basically looking at the life of uh, the disciple Peter. And really, it's a way, we've said it every week, to look at Jesus through the eyes of someone maybe maybe not quite as familiar to us and thinking about his life. And tonight, we come to a scene in Peter's life that I love because we're fresh off, you're here last week, we're fresh off the scene where Peter fails uh, Jesus. He denies him three times by that charcoal fire. And then Jesus, in that beautiful moment on the beach, invites him to breakfast. He's cooking on a charcoal fire, without, which was not an accident. And he restores Peter in the most beautiful way. And Peter uh, experiences the grace of Jesus. And because of that, it really begins to change Peter. Peter really is becoming, he was Simon when Jesus met him. Jesus gives him this nickname, Peter the Rock. And he really is becoming the rock. When we said this, not because of what's in Peter but because of what's in Jesus and the way Jesus loves Peter. And so tonight we're walking into, we're walking out of that scene on the beach from last week, and we're walking into a scene in Peter's life that I love in Acts chapter 10. And I couldn't come up with a sermon title, so we're just calling this Peter the Evangelist, which is not super creative, but we're rolling with it. And it's a scene where Peter gets to walk Cornelius, a Gentile, someone Peter never thought would come to Jesus through the gospel. And so what we're kind of thinking about tonight is, one of the most beautiful things about being a Christian is, is to experience being converted to Jesus, whether you grew up in the church or not. But then part of what it means to continue as a Christian is it feels like there are over and over again times in your life where you're, where you're converted afresh, where you're, where yet, you're yet further converted. Um, the way that I would say it is I've had like three times in my life where I feel like I became, when I became a Christian freshman year of high school, and then right after college where I feel like I became a Christian all over again when I learned about this thing called Reformed Theology that we could talk about. And then, again, after seminary where I learned about this thing called grace, which I knew all along. But there are times in your life where you feel like you're further converted. And what I love about this passage is Peter's walking Cornelius through a conversion along with all of his friends. But Peter is also being further converted. So let's look at the passage. It's Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 27 to 47. You've got it on your handout. Here's what uh, Luke writes. Uh, Talking with him, Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law, Jewish law, for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, 
beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God anointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, imagine the scene, the Holy Spirit came and all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive into this passage tonight. Let's pray first. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much that you, um, you reveal yourself to us. You show us what you're like. You still are about the work of pouring your spirit out on your people, giving us uh, new eyes, giving us new ears, giving us new hearts. And I pray for my friends tonight. Lord, some of us, that hasn't happened for us. And Lord, I pray that tonight would be the moment of our conversion. And Lord, for some of us, um, we, we have been converted. We, we do trust you, Jesus. We love you. And we have been, we've got the forgiveness of sins through your name. But would you further convert us? Would you further deepen our walk that it might be in line with the gospel? Uh, would you further convert us to love and follow you? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Um, I was a few weeks ago preaching in a church in Greenville for, with a friend, and it's really fun to see friends plant churches, and this friend had planted a church about six months ago, and it's doing incredibly well. But one of the things I didn't expect to see, which was I think my favorite part of the whole weekend, was basically my friend and I are, are a lot alike. We've been friends for a long time. And so you know, I ask him, anytime you preach somewhere, you, the awkward question, especially when it's a church plant, is you ask the question, what do you wear? which seems like a real weird question for a dude to text another dude, like, hey, what should I wear to this thing? But I text him, hey, what is normal to wear? And he's like, you know, just blazer, jeans, button down. I'm like, all right, got it. So he picks me up, and he's, like, looking straight out of a J. Crew catalog, like a nice blazer, crisp button down, nice dark jeans, really nicely shined shoes. And I'm like, all right, I'm a little underdressed for this, but whatever, we're rolling with it. We drive over to the church, and what happened was something I didn't expect to see, which, I mean, I know my friend, he's heart of gold, love him and it it didn't really surprise me but it was beautiful to watch that after we parked i'm not kidding you homeless person after homeless person who go to his church he knew not only their names but their stories and we stopped for you know five ten fifteen minutes at a chunk we were there an hour early and he just talked to them one by one and it's funny to think about watching a friend who you know here's this guy that looks totally different loving interacting with people he never probably thought especially before he was converted that he would ever love and know and talk to and the same thing is happening here tonight with peter peter is shocked genuinely shocked to find himself in the house of cornelius this is the last this is the first time he's ever been in a place like this that's why he says we jews don't do this but it's also a place he didn't expect the gospel to take him, and yet here he is, and we get to walk through it with him. So what we really want to think about tonight is think about we get to walk with Peter through the, the conversion of Cornelius. So I want to think about conversion tonight. 
what it looks like, what it is, how we know it's come to us, how we know we've experienced it, but also how we can be a part of it in someone else's life, uh, the life of people, our friends that we long to be, our family that we long to be converted. So four things I want to talk about about conversion. And I want us to listen in that way. Are we converted? And how do we be a part of this uh, work of God in in our friends' and family's life? So first, here's the first thing about conversion that we learn. First, conversion comes through God's initiative. Conversion comes through God's initiative. Uh, What's interesting is, is Cornelius called for Peter because God had already called for Cornelius. Look at verses 30 to 33. Here the angel comes and he tells Cornelius, go find Peter and listen to him. Why? Because God, had, because God had called for, he sent for Cornelius. Cornelius sends for Peter because God had sent for Cornelius. Um, it's interesting to watch this scene because certainly we could say, like, not every conversion looks this way. Like, not every conversion comes complete with an angel and a vision. Um, that's really unique in this scenario. Like, even throughout the book of Acts, we see lots of conversions. Lydia is the Ethiopian um, financial minister, no, that's not how they looked. Theirs were much more normal, and maybe yours is certainly mine is much more normal through just people witnessing to you about Jesus, inviting you. Mine was as simple as being invited to youth group. But the point is, at some point, if you are converted, if you belong to Jesus, there is something that you, that you know, whether it's at first in a radical way or whether it's further down the road, you know that the only, the only reason you're a Christian is because God was seeking you. It wasn't that you were seeking God. It's that God was seeking you. And even in your seeking God, maybe this is the truth for some of you, maybe this is where you are, that when you can really take a step back and look, even your seeking him was the result of him first seeking you. Um, and at some point, when, when you're genuinely converted, you just, you just know that. Like, I remember, this is not, we're not arguing. We, we could talk a long time, and I'd love to grab coffee and talk about what Presbyterians believe about election and predestination. We could talk a long time and have a lot of fun over coffee about it. But part of what I'm saying is, this is how it works. Like, if you go through the Bible, if you go through, let's look at Paul's. Paul is just going on a road to Damascus to kill some Christians, and Jesus just shows up, and he's been seeking Paul. It's the same for Cornelius here. He calls for Peter because God had first called through the angel for Cornelius. Uh, C.S. Lewis put this really well. He, he's writing a letter to an undergrad student of his. Her name is Sonia Graham. This is uh, 1951, and she was had a lot of questions. She had a lot of questions about the atonement. She had a lot of questions about um, you know just theological things that she was trying to understand how Jesus could be God and man. And he wrote her this beautiful letter answering very winsomely her concerns and questions. And then he had this P.S. on the, on the bottom of it that I love. He says this, of course, because at some point in her letter, we don't have her letter, but she must have said that I feel like a hopeless case. And here's what he, his P.S. was. He said, of course, God does not consider you hopeless. If he did, he would not be moving you to seek him. And he obviously is. What is going on in you at present is simply the beginning of the treatment. Continue seeking him with seriousness. Unless he wanted you, you would not be wanting him. Unless he wanted you, you would not be wanting him. I remember growing up, uh, I guess I must have been like seven or eight, but I was, like probably some of you were as a kid, a little bit afraid of the dark, a little bit afraid of going to bed by myself. And I remember this moment pretty vividly. It's a weird, you know, you have those weird moments that you remember from childhood, and this was a weird one for me. But I remember like sharing that with my dad. And I remember him saying to me, Sammy, you know, if you ever are afraid, if you're ever afraid and you feel lonely when you're going to sleep, you can just, even from your bed, just call my name. Just call out to me. 
And I remember like going to sleep and actually taking him up. And I remember laying in my bed and I would sort of like softly whisper, Dad, just to see if he, like, I, don't, I guess the kids do you sort of play the game. And you're like, can he really hear me? Does he really hear me? Just, Dad, Dad. And then sure enough, he would come. He had those parent ears. He would hear me and come. And I was thinking about this. Like, I think it's, a, it's an illustration, or at least it's an attempted illustration to think about that's how it is with the Lord. You're, why did I call my dad? I called my dad because he had told me. He, he had already, in a sense, in a much deeper way, called me and said, you can call me anytime. And that's how it works with the Lord. You would not be seeking him if he were not seeking you. At some point, you realize this about yourself. And part of what this means, too, is part of what you realize is it's a miracle that you're a Christian. One of the surest ways that you know you're not converted is to think, oh, yeah, it makes sense that I'm a Christian. Like, that's a, that's a litmus test to know that you're actually not converted. And one of the things when you really realize this is how Jesus has worked in your life is it's a miracle to you that you would belong to Jesus, that you could be called, you could call yourself a Christian. So first, conversion comes through God's initiative. Second, conversion, this is a little trickier, always comes through a challenge of religion and morality. And by the way, this is totally coming from a guy that we love called Tim Keller. I want to call him a good friend because we stayed in his house in New York. And um, so I'm going to call him my good friend, Tim Keller. <laughs> Uh, conversion, first, God's initiative, but second, it always comes through a challenge of religion. This is what's really, really fascinating about this passage. The angel's words, to, if, you, if we go up the passage, which we didn't read, the, the angel's words to Cornelius were really interesting. He basically says, listen, we've been watching from heaven, and we've, we've seen you, Cornelius. You're a good dude. Like, you pray, you're wealthy, but you give money to the poor. You, are, you, are, you have not let your wealth or your status go to your head. You pray faithfully every day. And I think we would think, especially those, I mean, a lot of us grew up in the South, I think we think the angel would say, keep at it, buddy. We're, you're, we're impressed by you. You're on the right path. Keep going. And that's not what he says. He says, you're a good dude. Therefore, you need to be converted. You're a good dude. Therefore, you need to hear about Jesus. It's really interesting. It's a challenge to Cornelius, his religion and morality. Um, it's, it's, it, it has everything of the, the conversation. It smacks of the conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, same kind of thing. Nicodemus is not like the other Pharisees. He quietly seeks Jesus out. He's not trying to kill Jesus. He really wants to. He recognizes something special about Jesus, and he does the same thing. He comes to Jesus and says. Jesus, you know, what do I need? And remember what Jesus says. He doesn't say continue on the right path. He says, you, this, you, you've got to start from scratch. We've got to start this thing all over because you've been building an identity and that identity is not in me. That identity is in something else. It's something good, something, something that we can say is good, but it's not in me. And therefore, we've got to tear it all down and build, start from scratch. This is why, you know, we could agree that the Bible says that I think, like on this campus, there would be widespread agreement that we could say if we said the problem of humanity is... We all put ourselves in the place of God. And I think we could all be like, yeah. Like, I think even us in this room would say, yeah, that makes sense. But I think even if we were to go on campus and just do a survey and say, is this true? Like, do you think humanity's basic problem is we put ourselves in the place of God? And I think Christian and not would say, yeah, that makes sense to us. But here's what I think we confuse. I think we confuse that. I think we think about putting ourselves in the place of God in the sense of rebelling against him. Like, I think we think about it like, we're putting ourselves in the place of God so that we refuse to answer to God. So a lot of us have done that, right? A lot of us lived freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year. A lot of us have lived a, part, a chunk of our lives 
in that kind of rebellion where we said, God, I'm not going to answer to you. Forget you. I hated learning about you. I hated being forced to like do youth group kind of stuff. I am like, forget you. I'm not going to answer to you anymore. I'm going to go my own way. But the part that we don't think about is the Cornelius part, is the Nicodemus part. There, there's another way to rebel, to put yourself in the place of God, and that's to be so good. It's not that you think you don't have to answer to God. It's that you think you're so good God has to answer to you. That's why when we make the joke about future spouses, it's always interesting because I think sometimes quietly, so many of you live that, like, if I'm just faithful to Jesus, he's going to bless me with the perfect husband and or wife. And, and when you put yourself in that place, you expect, you're, you're, you're living in a way where you're saying, he owes me. I've lived in such a way where he owes me. And I want you to see that the gospel always comes in and challenges that so hard, so hard. Um, Flannery O'Connor has got a genius story called Wise Blood. And getting at this idea, Hazel Motes is this character who gets converted superficially, wants to become a preacher. But he's the kind of preacher where he wants to start a church where he essentially he's, he's living in such a way where God has to answer to him. And there's this line that O'Connor uses that's so genius. She says about Hazel Motes, this young, fiery preacher, she says about him, he knew the safest way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. There's a way of living where you refuse to answer to God, but there's a way of living where you try to be so good that you won't. God has to answer to you. And conversion always challenges that. Um, there's a lot of C.S. Lewis tonight. There's another scene in Great Divorce. I don't know if you've ever read Great Divorce. It's one of the lesser-known Lewis works. But there's a scene where a, a ghost encounters, who's heading to hell, encounters this uh, a guy he recognizes from life who comes down from heaven. And there's this scene that's really, really beautiful that gives us a, this idea where the ghost, this guy that he met had murdered someone when they lived on earth together but had come to repent of his sins and, and receive Jesus, and now he's in heaven. And they had this conversation about what we're talking about. And here's how it went. Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping his chest, but the slap made no noise. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was re- a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults. Far from it, but I'd done my best all my life. See, I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took and I and if I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. And then the bright, this called the bright man. He says it would be much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. See, I'm asking for nothing but my rights. Oh, no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I've always done my best, and I've never done, you know, I've never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. And I love this line. The bright man says, then do at once ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. And then here's the ghost. So that's the trick, is it? Shouted the ghost, outwardly bitter. And yet I thought there was a kind of triumph in his voice. This is the narrator. It had been entreated. It could make a refusal and this seemed to it a kind of advantage. I thought there'd be some damn nonsense. It's all a click, all a bloody click. There's, tell them I'm not coming. See, I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see, not to go sniveling along and charity tied under your apron strings. If they're too fine to have me without you, I'll go home. 
it was almost happy now that it could, in a sense, threaten. That's what I'll do, it repeated. I'll go home. I didn't come here to be treated like a dog. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. Damn it, blast the whole pack of you. And in the end, still grumbling but whimpering, also a little as it picked its way over the sharp grasses it made off. And I love that idea. Those are the two ways to live, right? I don't want anybody's charity, bleeding charity, or ask for the bleeding charity. It costs nothing, and yet it covers everything. And this is what Cornelius begins to see. This is what Nicodemus began to see. But let's keep going. Third, so first it comes through God's initiative. Second, it always challenges morality and religion, and it shows you something different, the gospel. But third, it always comes through this powerful transformation that can only come by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter walks in. This is the scene that I think is really fascinating to me. Peter walks into Cornelius' house, and he knows this thing is a, like an outright genuine revival. Um, and verse 46 gets at it. There are kind of two signs that this thing was a genuine they were genuinely being converted. Uh, the first is, it says they were speaking in tongues. We're going to get to that in a second. And then the second is, says they were praising God. Let's first talk about the way that Keller says it's, it's genius. If there's always, when you get converted, there's always a psychological transformation. Your, your heart goes from worshiping something that's not God to actually praising God and God alone. And there's also a sociological transformation that moves you toward people who are other or different than you. But let's first talk about the praising God part because the tongues thing is always tricky. Uh, praising God. So part of how you know conversion has happened is you move from worshiping bad things or even good things in an ultimate way, and you move to worshiping God and God alone. Um, no one got this better than a guy named one of my favorite writers, David Foster Wallace, and he's got this uh, graduation speech he did at Kenyon College like 10 years ago. And here's how he puts it. He puts it, sometimes I think he had to be converted. Like, even though he killed himself, okay, that's super sad in a lot of ways. There, had, there was some hope. There was something he got about the gospel. And when he talks about worship and how we all were made to worship, he nails it. Here's what he says. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Uh, the only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship uh, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure. You always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On the level, we all know this stuff already. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromines, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. But the trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And what I'm saying is, part of what's happening is these Cornelius and these Gentiles have gone from worshiping who knows what to worshiping and praising God. And what's hard about this is there are ways where it looks like we're worshiping and praising God where we're actually not. Um, I love the way uh, Keller talks about being in a a campus ministry uh, in his growing up. And he talks about this guy who came to their meeting one night. like a guy walked in here who we all knew was incredibly sexually promiscuous, had, you know, was just known for kind of bragging about having kind of a huge sexual bravado. And this guy came to their meetings and said, I want to, I want to know Jesus, I want to follow Jesus. And he talks about how it was a shocking thing. 
And he says it was really beautiful to watch, but then they noticed something that was really interesting, is that when this guy was in a Bible study or when this guy was in any kind of setting, he had to be the one in control. He had to be the one leading. He had to be the one whose opinion was heard louder than any others. He had to have power. And what Keller says is that he was famous for these sexual escapades, but what everyone knew is as soon as he got a girl, he didn't want them, he didn't want them anymore. And Keller says basically what he was doing was he was worshiping all along, first in sort of the way he was doing himself sexually, and then secondly, even within a Christian campus ministry, what he was really worshiping was not God, it was power. And it goes that way for us. For some of it, it is power. We want to be in control. We want to be heard. We want to be noticed. For some of us, it's approval. We want to be liked. <laughs> so much of me has wondered throughout my Christian life, am I in this thing just because I want to be liked? And that's a constant challenge to the idol of approval in my own heart. Am I praising God? And P- Peter walks into this house and they're praising God. But then the other thing that's happening is they're speaking in tongues. The reason this is really important is the only other place in Acts, we're not actually, I don't, I'm not, this is not my hot take on like a charismatic issue. That's not what we're doing. But what I want to say is the reason this is fascinating in Acts is there, the only other place in Acts where this happens is where? At Pentecost. And what the message that God is, is pounding over Peter's head is, I haven't just come for you and people like you. I've come for Cornelius and people that you think are unclean and people that you think are below you and people that you think are outside of the bounds. I've come for them as well. And so God does a mini, it's a beautiful thing. He does a mini Pentecost in Cornelius' house. And, and it's a beautiful scene. And, and Peter gets what God is saying. And what God is saying is, if you think about Pentecost, what, what was the tongues thing? It wasn't necessarily this powerful display of how the Holy Spirit works. The tongues thing is important. Do you remember what it says in Pentecost? Because everyone heard the, the gospel in their own native tongue. Why does that matter? That matters. This is one of the things that's most beautiful and unique about Christianity. Is there, it can't, One culture can't contain it. The truth of the gospel transcends every tribe and tongue. Which means when the gospel gets a hold of your heart and your life, you're going to transcend your own cultural, racial preferences. And you're going to be moved, like Peter here is moved by the risen Jesus, to interact and love, just like my friend that I was telling you about at the beginning, is moved to love people unlike you, who you never thought, who maybe your whole life you've thought is unclean, but you move toward them because you realize that's you. The gospel has said you're unclean, and yet Jesus loves you. How dare you think someone, someone is too unclean, too beyond the gospel, and so the gospel begins to eat away at our cultural superiority, our sociological superiority, anything that we cling to to find meaning and identity, the gospel begins to eat away at to unite us to each other by the Spirit. The the Spirit comes, so conversion, God's initiative, it always comes through um, uh, a challenge to religion, it always comes through the powerful transformation of the Spirit, and then lastly, it always comes through the words of the gospel, what we're talking about. It always comes through the words of the gospel. This is another really fascinating thing. Why didn't the angel, when he, when he came to Cornelius' house, just zap them and convert them on the spot? I mean, like, he could have. Like, God could have just sent the angel, zapped them all, they're converted, it's beautiful, we'll read about it. That's not how it happens. The passage says, really interestingly, that the Holy Spirit came in power the passage says, through the words Peter was preaching. What were the words? It's actually really similar to Acts 2. He just talks about the life of Jesus, how beautiful, spotless his life was, the things he did. John says if there wouldn't be enough books in the world 
to contain all the beautiful healing things Jesus did. And then the death of Jesus, the confusing death of Jesus, this man who only, who only has ever lived the blessed, righteous life gets cursed. That's why he mentions the tree. He gets hung on a tree. He takes the curse of being hung on a tree. Why? Well, the resurrection says he took that death not because he deserved to die, but he took that death to die the death that we deserve to die. And, because, and the resurrection is an, this beautiful witness to Jesus rose again because he died for your sins and my sins. He took the curse that we deserve, the curse that our lust, our greed, our petty jealousy, our... Ugh. He takes that on himself at the cross, the shame of that on the cross that he might give us the life of blessing that he alone deserves. Going back to Pentecost, one of the fascinating things that happened there, if you remember the scene, is little tongues of fire fell on all the believers' heads. As the Spirit was poured out, little tongues of fire, it said, rested in their heads. And it's interesting because earlier Luke has another example of fire in the, in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is with his disciples. They're passing through Samaria. And the Samaritans reject them. They're nasty to them. And the disciples, knowing their Old Testament, said, remember Elijah when he got rejected? Remember what he did? He called down fire. Should we call down fire on these people? And Jesus rebukes them. He's like, no. And then a little bit later, Jesus says, we get a little glimpse as to why. Jesus says in Luke 12, he said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The question is, here's Jesus, he's on the cross. The scene in Elijah, 2 Kings 1, Elijah's, you know, they're, they're challenging his God. Elijah says, challenge him. And he calls down fire. The consuming fire destroys the soldiers. And here we are at the cross of Jesus, the, the true and better Elijah. And why is the fire not called down on the soldiers? It could have been. Because at the cross, the fire was being... The baptism Jesus is talking about is the fire of God's judgment consuming Jesus. The fire of, of God's wrath consuming Jesus. That, that at Pentecost and at Cornelius' house, and even today, 2017, University of South Carolina, that we get the fire. We get the, the converting fire of the Spirit, the fire of God's power, and the fire of God's love because of what Jesus has done for us. Um, I'll close with this. There's a, a story. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. This guy, Tony Campolo, is a Christian writer and speaker. And he was going to uh, Honolulu, Hawaii to do a conference some years ago. And he flew in, uh, got there pretty late, but he was all messed up because of the time change. So it's like 3.30 in the morning. He's hungry. He's fresh off a plane. He wants to go grab a bite to eat. So he goes to a little local diner. And he's in this diner, and he's got his coffee, and he's got his donut. And in walk this group of like eight or nine prostitutes. And, uh, and they're loud, and they're like wearing nothing. And somehow he's like at the, the bar, and they're starting to talk. And one of them, was her, her, he called her name Mary. Mary uh, kind of talks about the rest and says, you know, guys, tomorrow is my birthday. And they're like, oh, we don't, you know, they just kind of make fun of her. And she's like, you know, that's fine, but I've actually never had a birthday party. And Tony's listening at the bar. And, um, and then the prostitutes kind of do their thing and leave. And Tony's still sitting there, and he looks at this guy, Joe, behind, who's the cook, and he says, these girls come in here often. He says, yeah, pretty much every night. And he says, I got an idea. He's like, what if we show up tomorrow night this time, and we throw Mary a birthday party? 
Like, I'll get a cake, you guys get balloons and candles, and we're going to throw her her first birthday party. And he's like, Joe's like, this is a great idea, I love it. So Tony shows up the next night, the balloons, all you know, the, the candles, they have this beautiful cake that Tony's went and bought. And, and they walk, and as they walk in, Joe and the rest of the prostitutes begin, Joe's talk to them, and they begin singing her happy birthday, and they give her the cake. And there's this moment, Tony says, where she gets the cake, and she, she says, can I just for a second stop, and do you mind if I actually, I live close to here, can I just take this cake home? Because I've never actually gotten a birthday cake before. And so she takes the cake home, and she comes back, and everyone's sort of gone silent. Tony sort of says, can I pray? And so he prays for them, prays for Mary, prays that she would know Jesus, prays that she would know the joy in the party that Jesus is. And after he finishes praying, Joe is shocked, and he said, I didn't know you were a pastor. What kind of church do you belong to? And in this moment of Holy Spirit inspiration, he said, the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Joe says, I've never heard of a church like that. And this is what Peter's experiencing. Not a a church like that, but a Jesus like that, who, who kind of comes in places that we don't expect, ourselves included, and throws a party and changes everything and makes it new and brings us into his joy. And, you know, that, this is the heartbeat of evangelism. Like, don't mistake, this has just happened for Peter. Do you remember Peter? He went out and wept bitterly, and Jesus threw him that small party on the, on the shore with the fish and the breakfast. Then he moves into Cornelius and does the same thing. It's the same for us. So let's join him in that. Let's pray together. Um, Jesus, would you let us join you in this party? Would you let us join you in, in the beauty that is you converting us uh, for the first time or for the third or fourth or fifth time? Would you convert us by the power of the gospel again tonight? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.